You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. So we are finishing our series today called Sunday School. And, uh, and I've been, this has been a good series for me. It's been good for me to walk through. First couple weeks, I got to hear some great messages. And then even last weekend, I had some good feedback from people just saying, I never thought about the story of Jonah that way before. And so today we're gonna look at another story that takes place in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're gonna be primarily, we're gonna start in Genesis chapter six today. Uh, but this is the story of Noah's Ark. And this is gonna be similar to the story of Jonah that maybe you know some of this story, but you probably don't know all of it. And so I wanna walk through some of this with you. And let me just set it up a little bit. Genesis chapter one through three is a creation story. Uh, God creates, speaks everything in the universe into existence. Uh, in chapter two, um, we see Adam and Eve at the end of chapter two, the very last verse that says they were naked and unashamed. And this has very little to do with their physical appearance and more to do with the state of the world, that there was no sin in the world. And because there was no sin in the world, there was no shame in the world. So there was no covering, there was no um, jockeying for position or guarding yourself or mistrust. There, it was a place of just total transparency and honesty. And this is how they approach their relationship in the world. We get into chapter three and Adam and Eve sin against God, they rebel. And when they do, sin enters into the world, they recognize their nakedness, uh, shame comes in and they cover themselves. They hide from God. Uh, we get into chapter four. This is Cain and Abel. And after sin enters the world, God brings correction. There is punishment. There, it's, it's not just punitive though. There's correction for their behavior and the choices they made. So chapter four, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, Cain kills Abel. And this is really a watershed point where at this point, humanity descends into depravity and darkness. They begin moving toward selfishness more and more away from God. In chapter five, we see it's a account of the family tree, basically, from Adam down. And then we get into chapter six. And in chapter six, um, the first few verses are notoriously difficult to interpret. There is not a lot of consensus on what some of these verses mean or what they're supposed to mean. And so I wanna walk through this a little bit with you. Um, and, and if we disagree, that's okay. There's some of these things that it's important for us to know, but it's not foundational for our faith. And so let me just jump into this. Genesis 6.1 says, then the people began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. So people began to multiply. This is part of God's plan. God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. That's what he tells them to do. And so sure enough, his plan is coming to pass. It says, the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. The Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. Now, even this, there is controversy in some camps about what this means or how to approach this or apply some of this. So let me just say this, that up to this point, from a biblical perspective, people had a longer lifespan. And this seems to be when God said, okay, we're gonna shift this, that humans typically won't live more than 120 years. Verse four, it says, in those days, 
And then and for some time after, giant Nephilites, or it might say Nephilim or, or giants in your translation, lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. All right. So some of you right now, you're new to church and you're like, what in the world kind of church is this? So let me explain this to you. Um, there are three views of this passage that I just read to you. So the question is, who are the sons of God? It says sons of God would lay, I'll say it that way, just to make it less uncomfortable. Sons of God would lay with women. So what, who were the sons of God? So there's three opinions, primary opinions about who the sons of God were. The first opinion is that they were descendants of Seth. Seth was the godly son of Adam and Eve, that they were sons of God and they intermarried with ungodly women, which they shouldn't have. And their, their offspring were these, these men of renown is the way some translations say it. Um, and that's, there's a case to be made for that. Uh, another, and this is, that's not the one I subscribe to personally. There's another case to be made that these were um, people who were kings that claimed divinity, that they were royal in their earthly kingdom, but they claimed to be descendant directly from God. And this is not a, an uncommon claim in the ancient world. We see this many times in history where a ruler would claim to be a descendant of God himself, divine in nature. Um, and again, you see it. There were claims about that with Alexander the Great. There were claims about that with the Pharaohs. Uh, this happened often. And that might be the case. That's not the one I subscribe to. I actually subscribe to the third idea. And the third idea is that um, there were evil angelic beings that were part of the fall. In fact, Nephilim, one of the ways it can be translated is the fallen ones. And so I, I personally believe that it was fallen angels who laid with or got together with earthly women and their offspring were um, what it's describing here when it says the Nephilim. Now, there is, there is no conclusive evidence for any of this. And this is all kind of a side note, let's be honest, because this does not change who Jesus is or what he's done in my life. This is not foundational for us. This is uh, a little superfluous. But let me just say, um, th the theory is that this is where some of the stories from the ancient world have come from. Stories even in ancient Greece about uh, people like Hercules or some of the Greek gods, that these were actually stories that, stories that were rooted in some truth that came all the way back from this window of history. So it's neither here nor there at the end of the day, but we don't know for sure. But it doesn't make a difference to who you are in Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus died for your sins and loves you very much. But it's interesting. You could get hung up on this if you get on the Google webs and uh, do some YouTube searches, this can mess you up. So I'm just saying, you can burn a lot of hours uh, looking through this. Uh, you don't need to, I just gave you the rundown for it. Verse five, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently or totally evil. Everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. 
All right. There's, there's some things we need to unpack here. The first is this, God observed humanity and he recognizes that they are totally and consistently wicked, that their hearts are far from him, that they have taken his good creation, which was once good, he called it and proclaimed it good, and now it is not good. And this is what has happened when it's put in our hands, in the hands of people who are for themselves and not for God. And it says that the Lord was sorry he had ever made them. He was sorry he ever made them. Some translations might say he regretted that he made them. Now, there are a couple places in scripture we see this language used that God regretted. Um, And and I wanna help you understand this because what it seems to indicate, because when we say I regret something, what it means is I made a mistake. So I'm like, oh, I bought this car and it's too expensive. I shouldn't have got it. I regret buying that car. What I'm saying is I made a mistake. Um, maybe you, you started dating someone and you're like, oh, I should have never started dating this guy. I should have never started dating this girl. What you're saying is I've made a mistake. So I wanna help you with this. This seems to indicate that, that God came to his senses and was like, oh no, what did I do? But I wanna help you with this. Our God does not make mistakes. And I'll take it a step further. He is incapable of making mistakes. He cannot make a mistake because he is God. So there's never a time that God has ever had a moment where he was like, oops, I messed up, or oh shucks, I shouldn't have done that, or what did I do? He's never had that moment like we do where we experience regret. So one of the things about this passage is that the, the, the author of Genesis is trying to help us understand what position God is in. The problem is there is a limited amount of language we have. And so what's happened is we will assign human values or conditions to non-human things. There's a term for that in literature, but we do this with God and God is definitely not human. But what we do is we assign our traits to God at times to try to help us understand who he is. So when we say God regretted God didn't regret making humans the way we would think of it. It says he was brokenhearted. He was sad. So have you ever been around someone and they were going through something and they were, they were in bad shape and you said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you were not responsible for them losing their job. You were not responsible for their diagnosis but you still felt sorrow because of where they were and and how they got there. This is probably a little more akin to what God was expressing in that moment. Not that, oh, I didn't see this coming because he saw it coming. But his heart was broken that the good creation he had made, the, the people he had made, the people that he had made to be in relationship with had broken that relationship, had broken that intimacy. And now all of creation was a fractured version of what he'd originally created. So he was, he was sorry that he had made them. He goes on to say in verse seven, and the Lord said, I will wipe the human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky, I'm sorry I ever made them. Then it says in verse eight, but Noah found favor in the Lord. Uh, in the midst of this, 
in the midst of a world that is wicked, in the midst of a world that is consistently and totally evil, Noah found favor with the Lord. And we're gonna see why in a minute, but I want you to know this. Sometimes it feels like our world is totally and consistently evil, doesn't it? Like you'll hear news stories and you'll be like, how did we get here? What is going on when people treat other people this way or do the kind of things that the people in our world do at times? How did we get here? It feels evil. Sometimes it feels a little hopeless. I want you to know this. We have reason to hope in God. And if I continue to walk with God, I can find favor of the Lord in the midst of a totally and consistently wicked and evil world. So don't lose hope. So I've talked to people before about this statement that he says, I will wipe the human race I've created from the face of the earth. And I've had people say things like, how could a good God, how could you ever serve a God who would do that? And maybe you're here and you've said that. Maybe you're watching in Blairsville and you've said that. Maybe you're watching online and you've said that very thing. How could a good God ever do that? When I was in my freshman year of college, I was at a a non-Christian university and I had a professor who really pushed back on those of us that were believers. And we had this conversation one time. He was talking about the, the children of Israel going into the promised land and God commanded them, hey, go wipe out the Canaanites. It's like, how do you reconcile that with a God who is loving and benevolent? And it's hard to explain. So, so I will do my best to give this to you in a, in a bite-sized version. Um, the beginning of last year, in January of last year, we did a series called Holier Than Thou. And in that series, we talked about the holiness of God and that the holiness of God is the preeminent feature of who God is. That is his dominant attribute, first and foremost, that every other, every other characteristic of God flows out of his holiness. So he is loving, but he is loving because he's holy. Um, he is good because he's holy. He is everything he is, he is because he's holy. So holiness is first and foremost. So understand that when we're looking at this. When he says, I'm gonna wipe out the earth, what, what he's really saying is um, their evil has to be pushed back. Now, there's a phrase that, that I've talked about here before um, it's a cup of iniquity. And so when the children of Israel, um, actually when Abraham was going through the promised land initially, God said, hey, the Amorites, he mentions the Amorites. And he says, but not yet because their cup of iniquity is not full. They're gonna be driven out, but not yet because their cup of iniquity is not yet full. And what he's saying is, uh, he's using this word picture and he's saying uh, their, their sinfulness has not reached a place where I'm ready to judge it. And so there is a point that, that our sinfulness builds up, that when we live in unrepentant sin, uh, our sinfulness builds up to a point where finally God says it has reached a place that demands judgment because he is, remember, a holy God. So because he's holy, he has to judge sin, but because he is benevolent and gracious, he, he gives us time and allows that sinfulness to build up because he gives us time to, to, to repent and turn away so that, that we don't have to meet his judgment. This is what we see in this moment, that, that their cup of iniquity is filling up. And God has to do this because he is passionate to protect the goodness of the world that he created. Let's move into verse 9. 
This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So this verse tells us three things. Number one, Noah was righteous. Number two, he was the only blameless man on the earth, including his wife, including his kids. He was the only blameless person. And number three, he walked in close fellowship with God. And these are all really, really important for us to understand. I love the word blameless because it doesn't mean perfect the way we think of perfect. But, but in the Greek, it's tamim. And it, I mean, in the Hebrew, it's tamim. And it means complete or whole, entire, sound. So think about it this way. Uh, many times if somebody lies to you, they tell you a portion of the truth, but it's the broken truth, right? It's, it's not whole. So I'm gonna tell you 80% of the truth, but I'm not gonna tell you the whole truth. I'm gonna tell you 20% of the truth, but not the whole truth. So it is false. It is not true. It is not whole. And this is the way Noah lived his life. He was not perfect as we will see, but he was whole. He was not fractured. He was not broken. This is how he walked before the Lord. He was the only blameless person living on earth at the time. Goes on to say this, verse 11. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and filled with violence. God observed the corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. Everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all, um, wipe them all out along with the earth. And this is what he says, build a large boat from cypress wood, waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. And then it goes on to give detailed instructions on how to construct this gigantic boat. And then in verse 22, it says this in Genesis 6. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Now we don't know what the dialogue was. It doesn't spell it out. But Noah did exactly what God had commanded him. It doesn't indicate that he pushed back at all. Well, God, are you sure? God, how is this gonna happen? Do you really need to do that? None of that. He did exactly what God had commanded him to do. I told somebody in between our services, um, I, we love to put ourselves in these biblical stories and imagine ourselves in these roles, but, but I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. If I was Noah, would I have done this? I don't know. This is tough. He did exactly what God told him to do. The ark was uh, not a small boat. There's actually a, a recreation of the ark over in Kentucky. Um, of course. Of course it's in Kentucky. Makes sense. Uh, it's uh, south of Cincinnati, and it's called the Ark Encounter, if you're interested. It's, uh, it looks fantastic. I'd love to go check it out, honestly. Um, but they built a replica of the ark and they built it um, as close to the biblical standard as they possibly could. And when they built it, it's about 500 feet long and um, nearly 100 feet wide, nearly 100 feet tall. It is, it is a massive structure. And it was built with 3.1 million board feet of wood, of lumber, and it took another 1.2 million um, square posts of lumber for the, for the frame. Literally over um, close to four and a half million linear feet uh, or board feet of uh, wood to construct this massive boat. Um, a lot of historians or a lot of 
theologians think it would have taken Noah about 75 years to build the ark. 75 years. That is, <laughs> that is some kind of honeydew list, right? Like Kim is out of town this weekend with Emma and uh, she left me a to-do list. And I'm like, oh, but it's not gonna take me 75 years to do it. Can you imagine? I'm gonna take 75 years and build this boat. And he did. Now we don't know how many laborers he had with him. Maybe he had crews helping him. We don't know that for sure. Um, he might've been doing it alone. I don't know. It doesn't say emphatically, but even if he had people helping him, he had to feel alone. Because how do you think people were responding to Noah? I know in my neighborhood, if I start a project, it feels like the men in the area just kind of drift out toward the sound of like a hammer hitting something. They're like, well, what's going on over here? What do you got, a project? What's happening, right? And if he had four and a half million board feet of wood sitting in his yard, like, you know, I'm sure somebody's stopping by, somebody from the borough's like, you got a permit for that? I'm like, no, I do not. Hey, what are you working on? I got a pro project. I've just got a project I'm working on. No big deal. Oh, project, that sounds good. What, what, are, you, what are you working on? Is this a deck? This is a big deck. No, no, it's, 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 it's a boat. Wow, it's gonna be a big boat. How are you, how are you gonna get that to the lake? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not for the lake, really. It's not for the lake. Well, how are you going to get it to the water? Well, I mean, I was thinking maybe the water might come, come to it. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I don't, just throwing it out there. I don't know. Water's coming to it. How's the water going to get here? Well, I mean, what if, I mean, what if it like came up out of the ground? Okay. And I mean, uh, maybe it fall from the sky. You said it would fall from the sky? Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Rain, what's rain? Water that falls from the sky. Okay, uh, we'll see about that, won't we? That's interesting theory there. Noah, here's your tinfoil hat. Good luck with that. <laughs> hey, and, and it's a big boat. Who, who are you gonna take on the boat? It's, it's for me and my family. That is a lot of space for you and your family. Who, who else is invited on the boat? Um, male and female from all of creation, all the animals. What was that? Did you say male and female from all the created animals? Yeah, yeah I, might, I might have said that. You're going to gather up all the animals. Well, not all the animals, two of each of the animals, male and female. Okay. Can, can we get a ticket for your boat? No, you can't. Well, how come? Because you're a pagan. <laughs> you're doomed to die a horribly, horrible watery death. I'm sorry. Can you imagine how difficult these conversations may have been? You think cancel culture is new? You don't think Noah was gonna get canceled the first time this comes? He's a prophet. He's essentially a prophet. And he, he's saying to the people, hey, if you don't turn to God, you're gonna die. When? 
when the rain comes. When is that coming? I don't know. (laughs) Day after day, he's out there building his boat. Week after week, year after year. Do you think it stopped at any point? Do you think people were finally convinced, like, okay, we think you're probably right. Can we get on your boat? No. People were unconvinced. He looked like a fool. He was probably ridiculed. He was probably shamed. He was made fun of. Why? Because he had no evidence that what he was doing was correct other than that God had spoken to him. But he was so convinced by what God had said that he was willing to endure all that. He was faithful. He said, God, I don't need evidence. You just show me and I'm gonna do it. And he did, in spite of what it cost him. He said, I don't care if I lose my reputation. It doesn't matter to me. I'm gonna be faithful. In chapter seven, we see Noah build the ark. We see God give him instructions on what to do. He says, Noah... He finally finishes the ark and he says, Noah, you got seven days. Here's what you need to do. You need to finish gathering up supplies. You need to get seven pairs of the clean animals. So there's clean animals that they could use for consumption. They could eat the animals or they could use them for a sacrifice to God, to worship. And he says, you need seven pairs of those animals of these kinds. And then you need to get seven pairs of the birds as well. So he gathers them up. They seal up the ark. God seals up the ark. And then the rain comes. Do you think Noah cared about any of the ridicule or any of the shame or any of the scorn he garnered when the rain started? When the rain started, do you think it mattered to him at all that his kids' friends made fun of them? No, when the rain started, he was thankful. God, thank you that you are faithful to me and he had been faithful to God. See, I said earlier that, that Noah, he was the only blameless man on the earth, including his family. Now listen to this. Last week we talked about Jonah and Jonah sinned and his sin attracted a storm to the boat and Jonah's sin impacted everyone in Jonah's boat. I wanna help you with this. The opposite is true too. When you are a righteous man or woman, when you love God, when you live in a whole way before him where you are not fractured and broken, you are complete, you are blameless before the Lord. Can I tell you, when you walk with him in fellowship, do you know what happens? It affects everybody in your boat. See, it doesn't say that his family loved God. It doesn't say that they, now I'm sure they did to some degree or another, but do you know what? They they garnered the benefits of Noah's righteousness and they got on that boat. Your family is gonna be made different because of your righteousness, because of your decision to be faithful to God. They will be impacted because of that if you'll simply trust God. Let me move on. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Literally, it rained, fell from the sky. Water came up from the ground. It was a deluge. And it said floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. Now, let me just say for the record too, I don't know if it was a literal global worldwide flood. Maybe it was, or it could have been localized. And I don't mean localized like, hey, we flooded in Indiana, but not in Blairsville. Um, it could have, there is some, there's some 
archaeological evidence that there were, was a, um, a flood that affected all of North Africa, the Middle East, and Southern Europe. So basically all of the known world at that time could have been inundated with water exactly how the story of Noah's Ark described it, where it was 20 feet over the peaks of the mountains. Uh, it could have been exactly that way. There's some archaeological evidence to suggest that happened on a regional basis. Um, so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me if it was a literal global flood or if it was more localized. It's neither here nor there. I believe it happened because the Bible said it happened. And what we see here is 190 days, they are in the ark. Well, actually, they spent about 365 days in the ark by the time they were all said and done. But in verse one of chapter eight, it says, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him. He sent a wind to blow across the earth and all the floodwaters began to recede. God remembered him. He had not forgotten him. See, and we're in the midst of being faithful to doing what God has called us to do. That seems crazy, something we're getting ridiculed for, made fun of. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't set you aside. He hasn't abandoned you. He sees you and knows you. And that's where I would say he's been being faithful. If you'll continue to be faithful, you'll see his faithfulness. Spending a year on the ark. I don't know about you. If I have people I love, if I have my family come visit us from out of town and they're here for a week, right? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. At the end of the week, aren't you kind of ready for them to go home? You're like, I love my family. Well, I do too. I also love my home, <laughs> right? Can you imagine being locked on a boat with your family for a year? There's no internet. There's nowhere to go, nothing to do. <sighs> but God hadn't forgotten them. So what happens? Well, when they finally get off the ark in verse 20 of Genesis 8, it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and there he sacrifices burnt offerings, the animals and the birds that had been approved for the purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. By the way, you think your child is an angel. God just said your child is not an angel. He says, I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. What did Noah do when he gets on dry ground? He doesn't, be, he's not like, man, I'm starving. I haven't had a good burger in a year. He doesn't get off the boat and like, I heard it's peanut butter Oreo swirl day at the meadows today, which it is, by the way. I gotta go get me some fro-yo. He doesn't do that. What does he say? He says, God, you've been so faithful. You've been so good. I wanna worship you. And he sets up an altar and he, he sacrifices to God. We see in Genesis 9, 1, God says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And what we see here is this picture that he is the new Adam. He's given the same, he's given the same decrees, the same directions as Adam was given. He's given the same dominion over earth as Adam was given. He's the new Adam. We see in verses 11 through 17, uh, God reestablishes this covenant with 
his people. And he says, hey, I'm gonna give you a rainbow. And this rainbow is gonna be a sign of the covenant. And every time you see this rainbow, you're gonna remember the covenant we have made together. And when I was a kid, I used to think this rainbow was my parents you know, taught me well. In Sunday school, we would talk about this stuff. And, and I thought my teachers would say something like, and the rainbow is a sign that God won't ever kill us again. It was like, great. Like, I love those rainbows. Like, it was just a good reminder. Like, okay, God's not gonna kill us, right? And they didn't say it exactly like that, but that's the way I took it. But I wanna help you with this. The rainbow is a sign of the covenant. The important thing is not the rainbow. The rainbow reminds us of what's important. What's important is the covenant. And the covenant is what God makes with us, where he says, hey, I'm gonna be faithful to you, even if you're not faithful to me. Um, as I said earlier, my wife's in Nashville this weekend with Emma. They're looking at a college down there. Uh, and, and here's the thing. When I married my wife, we exchanged rings. And the ring is not the important thing. Now, for some people it is. Not for me. Uh, but the ring is not the most important thing. Not how big it is or how many carrots it is, anything like that. The ring is symbolic of what's really important. What's really important is the covenant. And the covenant that I have with my wife says, no matter what you do, I'm gonna be faithful to you. I'm gonna be the best husband I can be no matter what you do. And my wife has made covenant with me and she said, I'm gonna be the best wife I can be no matter what you do. And these rings that we are exchanging are a sign of our covenant. They're reminders of our covenant. Now, if I take my ring off, it doesn't mean I'm not in covenant any longer. It means that I've just set aside the sign, but the covenant remains. My wife's in Tennessee today. The distance does not mean we're not in covenant any longer. See, no matter where she goes, no matter where I go, no matter what we do, we are in covenant together. This is just a symbol of the covenant. So when we see the rainbow in the sky, it has nothing to do with death as much as it does to do the covenant that God has made with us, that he is faithful to us. He loves us. He loves you. He is for you. When, when you sin, when you rebel against God, his heart is broken for you. He is sorrowful for you. He's not angry at you. He's not ready to squash you. He wants to reconcile with you. So let me finish the story. Noah, real quickly. Noah, they get started multiplying. Verse 20, it says, after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine that he had made and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders and backed into the tent to cover their father. They did this. As they did this, they looked away so that they would not see him naked. Now, um, in Hebrew culture, it was a sign of shame to see your elders unclothed. And really, just about anyone, but especially your elders. And the fact that Noah was naked in his tent, uncovered, um, this, this was wrong for a, a number of different reasons. And what we see here is this parallel again. See, Adam came into this world he was created. He was sent forth to multiply, to do these things, take dominion. And he ultimately ended up, he was naked and unashamed in chapter two. In chapter three, he was naked and shamed. 
We see Noah here in this tent. He's naked and he's shamed. He has to be covered up. And what we see is the same problem of sin that's just cyclical. It just keeps happening, that there is not a solution to it. Our cup of iniquity fills up and then there is judgment for us over and over and over as a culture and as an individual. So what is the answer? And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, he was preaching. He said, when the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the son of man comes. What he's saying is people are just gonna be living their lives, doing their thing. They thought Noah was crazy. So I'm just gonna keep doing my thing until the day started raining. And they realized maybe Noah was right. And what Jesus is saying here is he's making this implication. He's saying, hey, it's gonna be like that. But he's saying, hey, I've got an ark for you to get into. There's a means of salvation for you and it's me. See, God is faithful. And he longs for us to be faithful. He longs to have people who will walk in fellowship with him like Noah did. But maybe you're not one of those people. Maybe you're somebody who you have not walked in fellowship with him. Maybe your cup of iniquity is filling up and you think I'm fine because nothing, God hasn't done anything yet. Did you know Paul spoke to the Romans about this very thing? There were people who called themselves Christians who were living ungodly lifestyles and Paul addressed this. They were presuming on the grace of God. They were saying, well, my life is okay. I haven't been punished yet. And what Paul says to them is, you are treasuring up judgment. He says, you are storing up judgment. And it's the same idea that this cup of iniquity is filling up, but we're blind to it because we think we're fine. And Jesus is saying, hey, you need salvation. And it's salvation so much bigger than just from a rainy day and you need to get on a boat. You need salvation for your soul and I am your salvation. So I wanna give you a chance to respond today. I'm gonna turn it over to Pastor Colin there in Blairsville. He's gonna finish us out and he'll give you a chance to respond to this message. But I love you guys more than you know and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Those of you here in the room, those watching online, I don't wanna belabor this. Um, we took some time at the beginning for the video and I don't wanna go real long, but I wanna give you a chance to respond today because I think God is dealing with some hearts. God is working in some lives. So I'd like to pray together. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would invade this space. I pray for those that are here today that recognize they're not really walking in fellowship with you. I pray for those that, that recognize that they're living in unrepentant sin and their, their cup of iniquity is filling up. I pray that they wouldn't look at that as judgment, but they'd see that as a, an act of benevolence from a God who loves them that you're giving them a chance, you're giving them an opportunity. So God, I pray today, there would be no condemnation in this place, but God, I pray your Holy Spirit would bring conviction into our hearts. I pray that we would see your goodness and your faithfulness. And I pray that, that we would endeavor to be people that you would call faithful. 
that we would endeavor to be people who walk in fellowship with you, that we know you, that it's not about our behavior. It's not about um, just being good or just going to church, but God, help us to see that it really is about intimacy with you, knowing you and you knowing us. So God, we invite you to just do that today in this place. Now, with nobody looking around, your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you'd say to me, Mel, I know I'm not in fellowship with God. I'm not walking in fellowship with God. I know my cup of iniquity is filling up because there's some things in my life that I know are contrary to the word of God that, that I haven't dealt with and let God deal with. If you say to me, Mel, I wanna walk with God. I wanna be in a relationship with him. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I just wanna pray for you. And if you wanna be included in that prayer, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it? You'd say, Mel, include me in that prayer. Yeah, thank you on my left, I see you. Yeah, thank you, sir, I see you on my left, praise God. Who else would say, Mel, include me? I see you up there, thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, thank you, sir, I see you in the center section. Just a few more seconds, anyone else? Yeah, thank you, ma'am, I see you. Praise God, praise God. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we're gonna pray a prayer. And this is us confessing with our mouths out loud. But we're gonna pray this prayer from our hearts. I'm gonna give you the words to say, but this is gonna be your prayer. You're praying it from your heart. So pray this prayer with me out loud. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. Thank you that I can find salvation in him today. From this point forward, my life is surrendered to you. Help me to walk in fellowship with you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause today, can we? Listen, if you prayed that and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, scripture says you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we would love to help you take the next step in your faith journey. The simplest thing for you to do would be to text Summit PA to 94,000. Let us know about your decision uh, that way. Or you can fill out the card in the seat back in front of you. Stop by the info center in just a moment when we're done. Give it to them. One of our team is gonna be there. They're gonna help you take the next step in your faith journey. So please take advantage of that. In just a moment, as we're singing this final song, our team is gonna be down here, some of our prayer team, some of our staff to pray with you. If you have needs of any kind, we'd be honored and delighted to pray for you before you go today. So please make your way forward during this final song or even as we dismiss in just a moment, our team would love to pray for you. So stand to your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today, guys. I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. Uh, thank you for your patience with us today. Uh, let's uh, worship one more time and hopefully I'll see you Wednesday night for leadership night. God bless you guys. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.